Hi, welcome back to the Consensus Podcast by the Georgetown Bipartisan Coalition. This is Sanjay, your host, and today we're going to be talking about economics. Um, I'm really happy to have on Professor Burke uh, on the show today. Um, he's actually my current uh, microeconomics professor for this semester, so um, I can confirm to you that he's a great teacher. He really knows a lot. He's excellent at explaining uh, these concepts uh, to people, and I'm really excited to have him on. I wanted to talk about economics, you know, because it's probably one of the most important things um, when we're looking at the November elections. It's on the minds of everyone. Um, and I think uh, Professor Burke, uh, you know, is a great is a great person to talk to. He and actually, yeah, Professor, why don't you maybe just go uh, give yourself a little bio? Um, and and I'm very used to telling students, like, tell me your major and stuff. So I have to like kind of change up a little bit here, but just, just tell me about yourself and, and your experience. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, so I'm, I'm new full-time at Georgetown. I have, I have taught as an adjunct for a couple years in, in the master's program in economics. Uh, so, so I'm new just this term full-time and uh, teaching uh, undergrads and it's, it's been great and I'm really happy to be here. Before I came to Georgetown full-time, I was working also in Washington, DC at the Congressional Budget Office which is a nonpartisan government agency whose main role is to advise Congress. So a big part of what CBO does is cost estimates. When a big bill is proposed, the CBO is responsible for uh, coming up with an estimate of how much that will cost the federal government. And the CBO also will do various reports on issues of interest to the Congress. And so when I was at CBO, I was, I was mostly a report writer. So I worked on topics like the minimum wage and uh, student loans and other, other issues of policy interest to the Congress. Uh, and before I was at the Congressional Budget Office, I worked for a short time in consulting as an economic consultant or a litigation consultant, work helping um, companies usually in lawsuits. And, right, and before that, I, I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that experience is, is uh, a huge reason why I wanted you to come on. Um, I mean, the CBO is a great experience and just, we love it at the bipartisan coalition as a nonpartisan institution. Um, you know, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. I mean, can I ask you, you know, what do you think being at the CBO, you know, how nonpartisan does it get? I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, I mean, it's obviously, you know, working really close with Congress, right? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the process of like, you know, of like how a, how you do the calculations for a bill? Is there any kind of, or is it, how nonpartisan is it basically, I'm, I'm asking you? Yeah, yeah, great questions. So before I came to the CBO, I was aware of it from reading newspapers and policy reports and so on. I didn't know a, a tremendous amount about it, but I did know it was respected as a nonpartisan institution and that they took their nonpartisanship very seriously. And having worked at the CBO for five years, I, um, I can attest to you that it's, it's very serious about being nonpartisan. And I think they do a great job. And, and that really is an essential feature of the agency. It works for Congress. So Congress has, is represented, both parties are heavily represented in Congress, right? It's almost exclusively either Democrats or Republicans. And the power in Congress changes hands periodically. So CBO needs to be respected by both sides of Congress. And sort of the, the uh, something that people sometimes say at CBO is, we know if we're irritating both sides, 
we're doing our job right. Because sometimes CBO will come out with <laughs> findings that are what the Dems want to hear. Sometimes the findings will be what Republicans want to hear. And if this is, ha and you know, when the Dems get the, what they want, they're very happy and the Republicans are trashing CBO. And when there's a, si when there's a finding that the Republicans are happier with, the Democrats will, some Democrats will sometimes impugn CBO. But when both of these things are happening, CBO feels like it's, it's doing its job right. So, uh, yes, yeah, so CEO is very serious about its nonpartisanship. One way it does this is it does not make recommendations. It never makes policy recommendations. And we were always very careful um, to, to not, to purge any of our documents or writing from anything that was, uh, that seemed normative. So Sanjay, you know, in our class, we've talked about this right. normative versus positive yeah. description. Positive. Normative right. is, is our, um, Normative claims are claims that are based on values. And CBO is very careful to only make positive claims. We think the impact of this bill will be so many billion dollars. We think if you raise the minimum wage, this many people will lose, lose their jobs, but, but family income will go up by this much. So these claims are all based on empirical analysis that CBO can back up never based on what CBO thinks is best for the country. So the politicians will take CBO's findings and say, CBO says this is the likely impact of raising the minimum wage. Therefore, we should do this. But it's the politicians that are making these should statements, these normative statements. So CBO is very careful not to, uh, not to advise particular policies. That said, CBO's job is to evaluate the cost of particular policies. And sometimes the cost of a particular policy, CBO is very careful about doing its analysis, will, will be much higher than perhaps the party pushing the policy wants to hear. So CBO will say, this is what we anticipate the cost will be. But that's all they say. They don't say this means you should do the, enact the policy or not. Right. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Huh. And actually, so as a quick follow-up, I mean, you mentioned how much work you did about the minimum wage. This was actually the first thing I remember, maybe the first or second lecture of your class was a little bit about your findings on the minimum wage. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, that work? Yeah, sure. So, so this report uh, came out in, uh, in the summer of 2019. So just, just a little over a year ago now. And it was, and Congress was interested, as it periodically is, in raising the minimum wage. So, in most places, the federal, or in most places, the the minimum wage, most places in the U.S., the minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. And so, some people, um, some people in Congress think that's too low and it should be raised. Now, it's true the minimum wage has not gone up for quite a while. So that's one reason that there may be there may have been interest in this last year and there's there continues to be interest in raising the minimum wage but then there's this question well how much should should we raise it should it go from 725 which is the current federal minimum wage to should it go to 10 or 12 or 15 or what and different people talking about minimum wage have different ideas of this the two sort of with a broad brush the two sides of raising the minimum wage versus not raising the minimum wage are well, if you raise the minimum wage, you'll be helping people that have minimum wage jobs and are able to hold on to the jobs. And the idea is if you raise the minimum wage, it's harder for employers to pay that. And so some employers will let 
some people go. So if you have a minimum wage job, your wage goes up and you get to keep your job, you'll be better off. But some people that are currently in minimum wage jobs may lose their job because of this raise in minimum wage, just because the employers have to have higher costs and have to let some people go. So, so a big empirical question, the question based on data and analysis and, and our idea of how people are going to respond, how employers are going to respond, and how workers are going to respond to a higher minimum wage is, so the question is, how big will the employment effect be? Will there be a very small employment effect? And advocates of raising the minimum wage tend to think that the employment effect will be relatively small, maybe even zero. Whereas people that are more cautious about raising the minimum wage will say, gosh, if you raise the minimum wage, you might have a big negative employment effect. So this is where you need, where economists really come in. What will the impact be? And it's, it's not an easy question to answer, right? It's hard to know how employers and, and workers are going to respond, but that's what, but a lot of economists are interested in this. And so CBO took what economists, you know, professors and, and economists at think tanks and people active in the policy discussion. CBO, we reviewed the various research that's been done on this and CBO tried to come to its own understanding of what was likely to happen. And so CBO reviews the research. A lot of the research is conflicting. So CBO has to, has to you know, internally um, litigate, do we believe this paper or that paper, this paper or that paper. In the process, CBO is, is frequently in, in contact with established economists and policy um, experts on both sides. So they'll talk to conservative economists um, and liberal econ and progressive economists and, and try and come up with something that is hopefully agreeable to both sides. That can be hard to do, but at least, at least CBO is, is clear to hear from both sides. So CBO comes up with its idea of how employment is going to react to a change in the minimum wage, and then does the economic analysis, and then re releases those results. So um, yeah, I, I can stop there or keep going, Sanjay. No, yeah, well, so that's all really interesting. The process sounds very thorough and very interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I, but also I, I do, I'm really curious to find out um, the conclusion of that, that study. Well, I, I do sort of remember it. I remember the, and I remember how large the, um, the thing that struck, that struck me really was how large the margin of error was on, on some of that. Um, yeah. Especially the higher minimum wage is like huge. But yeah, why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, so in our report, we did look at three different potential ways of, of, um, of raising the minimum wage. So it was to go to $10 move it up to $12 or move it up to 15. So for, let's take the $15 example. So this is a high minimum wage and you may have heard in some locales like Seattle has a $15 minimum wage, right? So that's the local government there has imposed that minimum wage to that, to that market, okay? We're talking about the federal minimum wage. So if a local minimum wage is higher than the federal minimum wage, then in that place, the local minimum wage is, is the true minimum. But we're here talking about the federal minimum wage. So what about raising the federal minimum wage to $15? And our analysis um, showed that, so our estimate, the point estimate, that is if, if we have to give you one number, that is our estimate, was that that would reduce employment by 1.3 million workers. Okay, that's a lot of workers. 
Um, it's, not, it's not an incredible amount of workers. You know, it's less than 1% of the workforce, but it is a lot of workers. That's a lot of people. That's the $10. That's the $15. I'm sorry, that's the $15. Okay, yeah, so this is the highest minimum wage we looked at. Uh, or the, right, the highest minimum wage we looked at. So that was, that was CBO's estimate. We think 1.3 million people will lose their jobs. So that, that is a lot of people who, who would potentially be very hurt by losing their jobs. Now, you mentioned the confidence interval or the, or the, the, the um, uncertainty around this, because it's hard, you know, I mean, this is, this is a hard thing to estimate. And so with the estimate, CBO gives uh, uncertainty ranges. And I, I, I think the way they, I think the way we put it in the report was, there's a two thirds chance. So, so our center estimate, our central estimate is 1.3 million people losing jobs. The two thirds range, so there's a 66% chance, right? That that number will be between zero, that is no employment effect, and on the high end, I think it was 3.7 million. So a much higher employment effect. So CBO says our best, our best estimate is 1.3, but it could be anywhere between zero and 3.7 million, which is a large, which is a large effect um, in, in a large range, as you pointed out. And that is, that's just based on a lot of uncertainty in this. And so when CBO did its analysis, that, that was the uncertainty range that came from the analysis. Um, now, losing employment is just part of this, okay? So, so losing a job is, is obviously very harmful. So if the main breadwinner in a household loses his or her job, that's obviously very harmful to the family. But it's not clear where these, let's say, 1.3 million job losses will come from. Are they coming from heads of households? Or are they coming perhaps from teenagers that have part-time jobs? And you know, maybe a teenager lives in a middle-class household and that teenager loses his or her job as a result of the raise in minimum wage. So in addition to looking at this number of, to this, to this number of job losses, CBO also estimated what the impact on family income. So is family income gonna go up or down? And in particular, CBO broke up this analysis on family income into looking at family income based on how much, how much total income the family had. So CBO broke it down. I mean, I need to refresh my memory um, to know the exact groups, but it, it said, okay, for families that are at the poverty level, okay? So the poverty level is a, is a technical term that is defined, um, but, uh, but the poverty level is families that are at the poverty level. Um, and the poverty level, I mean, I should check, but it's, it's like in a $30,000 range for a family of four, okay? So families that are at this poverty level, what happens to their family income? So that's one group. Then what about families that are twice the poverty level? And what about families that are three times? And what about families that are above six times the poverty level? Okay, so CBO looked at the effect on family income for these different groups. And what it found was this $15 minimum wage would boost the family income for people who are in a family, in a household that have income below the poverty level Quite a bit. It would boost their their income by. I mean, I, I need to look at the numbers again, but by five or, or even more percent. So that's a pretty big income boost. Right. Other other families, families at different points in the income distribution, would have smaller benefits. And some families, particularly that family, I think the top, either the the high income group we looked at was six times the poverty level. Um, was uh, their income would actually go down a little bit 
And why would their family income go down? Uh, I mean, it's complicated, but the idea is when you raise minimum wage, um, people that's going to raise price, it's going to fall, it's going to flow through to prices at least a little bit, right? Now, maybe getting your grass cut by someone instead of costing $20 might cost you $30 or something. So this is going to hurt the, the effective income or the real income of, of um, some consumers. Oh, I was thinking the the kids just wouldn't have summer jobs. That was my guess for why it might hurt. Yeah, that could be, that could be it. Yeah, that could be part of it. No, no, that could that could be part of it. So the analysis tried to you know tried to take a lot of things into account. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could use that to locate where those job job losses were, um, and maybe if like upper income is going down, maybe it's because you know the kids of middle class families are. The ones being yeah, cut. Yeah. The, yeah, so, so that hurts income a little bit. Yeah, I think the main thing making that that the the um, the wealthier why would the wealthier households real income go down? Mm-hmm. Okay, I think the main driver was because prices went up a little right. bit. Makes sense. So so it's real income, you know, not its literal, you know, not the literal salaries they're making go down, but prices go up. But you're right, you're right. Some of those families had had teenagers working. Um, you know, sort of non, you know, working part-time jobs that lost their jobs. So that would feed into that too. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Wow, that makes sense. Yeah, looking at the data is very interesting. I mean, that report, at least the parts that I saw, was were very thorough, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and there's a great, I mean, just a plug, <clears throat> my old work and my colleagues' work, but there's a great <laughs> interactive tool where you can kind of, like, just go, just Google <clears throat> minimum wage, and you'll it'll take you right there, and you can look at the different policy proposals <clears throat> and, kind of change the minimum wage and, and see how the effects change. So it's a great tool for summarizing that. Right. I think that's what you showed us. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well that's that's really interesting. I think that 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 all makes sense and it's it's good to sort of know the different aspects of the minimum wage. I feel like people, you know, whether they're advocates or or uh, or opponents of it, really only focus on one of those, right? You know, liberals tend to focus on like, oh, how much is it going to boost family income? And conservatives just Go, always talk about how much how many jobs are going to get lost, but it is a dual thing. You know, it is a trade-off. Um, you know, I right. think that's, and that's it's, interesting. And it, it is hard to know. I mean, CBO does its best. This is another thing about about CBO. It has to answer these questions. It has to come right. up with an answer, even if it's very difficult to come up with an answer. Even if there's a lot of uncertainty, CBO has to come up with an answer, which is different than some other kinds of research, like a lot of academics. If you don't think you can come up with a good answer to a question, you don't, you don't answer that question. You work on another question. But CBO doesn't have that, um, that luxury. You know, Congress, right. what's going to happen here? And CBO has to, has to come up with an answer. You know, and they'll say, like, in, you know, they'll say, hey, this is the best we can do. There might be a lot of uncertainty, but this is why we, we think that. <clears throat> right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, one other question I had, and I don't know that, I don't know that you did work on this at the CBO, but I, I but just as an economist and just as a economics professor, I wanted to know, you know, because this is a big topic, you know, the the corporate tax and the changes that occurred to it two years ago, where we moved it from, what did it used to be, thirty percent? Yeah, now I think twenty one. Yeah, yeah, thirty five, and now it's like twenty one or twenty two. Um, yeah, so I mean, I I just want maybe if you could talk a little bit about the effect of those corporate taxes on actual employees, on actual prices of goods, on actual innovation. 
I think a lot of people have this conception that, you know, may, maybe on the conservative side that it is going to all that, that, you know, increases that reduction in taxes is going, is letting companies put money into all of that. Um, and we would be very happy about that. And others, uh, you know, think that companies are just increasing dividends or stock buybacks. And that's what, you know, those corporate taxes are going to. But yeah, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm a very, very far from an expert on the corporate tax, but I, but I can say some things about taxes in, in general that I think are relevant to this discussion. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Sanjay from our class, you, you've kind of heard some of this, but I'll, I'll just repeat a, a key fact about taxes, at least in the simple uh, models that, mm -hmm. that, that you learn in, in intro econ classes. Mm -hmm. and these simple models are actually quite powerful. So I think it's relevant. So there's one fact. So, so, I think to start, it, I think a lot of people, when you hear lower the corporate tax, people think this is, a, this is just a 100% handout to rich people, to CEOs and mm -hmm. Google and Goldman Sachs and these corporations that already have a lot. So it seems, I think when pe a lot of people hear lower the corporate tax, it seems, it seems corrupt, you know, deeply unfair. Why would you do that? No, those guys have all the money, right? Those firms, those CEOs, whoever, they have all the money. Why would you be, you should tax them more, not less. So, that, so that's, I think, a, a, um, a very common reaction. Taxes are pretty complicated. And so the idea that, that you know, to, to really grasp this, you'd need to sit next to Sanjay in our econ <laughs> one class. But mm -hmm. when right. you tax, so just talking about a tax in general, so when you tax a, let's say you tax, um, let's say you want to raise the income tax. What happens? You might think raise the income tax, that's hurting the workers, okay? But, but it's a little more complicated than that. So it may, it may be hurting the workers, but it may also, and in fact, it, it's actually, the burden of that higher tax will be shared by workers and employers. And why is that? Suppose I have a job, for suppose my suppose I have a job where my where where I make a hundred thousand dollars and suppose the income tax rate were ten percent okay it's mm -hmm. it's higher than that but let's suppose that so my take home pay in this case was ninety thousand dollars okay suppose the government says let's raise the tax rate from ten percent to twenty percent now my take home pay which is really the pay that I care about for the mo you know as far as making decisions about how to pay for my kids' piano lessons and buy groceries and so on. When the tax rate goes up from 10% to 20%, my take-home pay is now $80,000, okay? That would, so that's what would happen if there were no other adjustments. But I might think, I'm not willing to work this same amount for $80,000. I'm gonna get, find a new job. My employer would say, well, gosh, we wanna keep David Burke so we're gonna to have to pay him more. Instead of paying him $100,000, we'll have to pay him $110,000. So my employer would, would make some adjustments to try and keep me. And so now we're taking, and now the 20% the tax rate could still be in effect, but now it's 20% of $110,000 instead of $100,000. So when the government has raised the tax rate, I pay some of it, my take home pay would still be lower than, the, than it was originally. But it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a full you know wouldn't be lower by the amount of the increase in the tax because my employer is going to respond by paying me a little bit more. Right. So, so I would be hurt 
by this increase in taxes, but I'm not absorbing 100% of that increase in taxes. My employer would by raising the price. And this happens when you tax goods too. When you tax goods, it's not just the buyer that is paying a higher price, but the seller might need to change its price, okay? So, so whenever there's a tax, in general, both sides end up bearing the tax. Even if the government says buyers have to pay this tax, workers have to pay this tax, the actual effect is that both sides ending up end up sharing some of the tax. So to your question about corporate taxes, Sanjay, what happens when the government lowers or raises the corporate tax? The idea, and this is what, you know, you know, um, I, I, you know, I think you, conservatives or people that might be in favor of a lower corporate tax, they're taking this idea very seriously. They're saying, look, when you tax a corporation, you're not just taking money from Goldman Sachs or Google or Apple or whatever store. It, 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 it's gonna, there's another side to that. <laughs> so if you tax a corporation more, the corporation has to come up from, with that money from somewhere. And one place it'll come up with, one place that it might come up with it is from reducing the wages it pays its workers. Okay? So the corporate tax isn't, at least, yeah, it's not purely taking money from the profits of these companies that already have a ton of money. It's going to affect workers. And not just workers, but it will, they could also come up with money to pay the tax from raising their prices. So it's not just their workers, but it's the people that use their services. Right. So, so I think the idea of the argument for lowering corporate tax, <laughs> if we lower this, benefits will flow through to customers and, and, you know, to Americans, just to regular Americans, not just the CEOs and, and, um, and corporations themselves. So that's, that's one reason that there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, pressure to lower the corporate tax. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, I heard a good quote um, once about this. Um, I think a teacher in high school had told me something like this, like, you know, this was a quote from like Milton Friedman, that corporations are not people, right? So when you tax them, you're taxing three different parties at the same time, right? The, the employees, the, the customers, and the investors, basically. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the last election cycle, I think it was Mitt Romney. Sort of, he made this comment. I, I think it was behind closed, <clears throat> sort of a private event. But he made this comment, or maybe it was a public event. But he made this comment where he said, you know, someone was talking about corporate taxes, and Mitt Romney said, I mean, it was a horrible quote from a political, um, from a politician's right. But he said something like, "My friend, corporations are people." Too, <laughs> and what he meant by that, I, I assume, you know, this is the charitable interpretation, is that he said, "Look, when you tax a corporation, if you raise the tax on a corporation, you're hitting people, right? The corporation is is you know is made up of a bunch of people. Some of those right. people are the CEOs, but some of those people are the people that work for the corporation. So if you raise a tax on a corporation, that's ultimately going to affect people." And not just the CEOs and the workers, but potentially customers and other Americans. So that was his point of, that was his way of trying to say, hey, this idea of raising the corporate tax purely takes money from people that already have a lot of it is a little too mm. simplistic. That's how he put it in a mm. kind of interesting way, but not a good way for a politician to. <laughs> no, yeah, it didn't go over well. Yeah. Um, 
right that makes sense yeah yeah okay gotcha gotcha okay well i think yeah i think that that also that was that that was great um i think yeah it's good to think about all the ways yeah i think you're totally right i mean people when they hear corporate tax they really think it's just to get a handout to the rich it's just that's just solely it and it's important to kind of look at it from all these perspectives because corporations are not just themselves people they're made up of people um, yeah yeah and i will say and like like i said i'm not you know i'm not an expert on the corporate tax or i'm not right. not only am i not an expert i'm very far from being an expert on it. Right, i will right, say right. that a lot of economists not just you know not just conservative economists but a right. lot of economists are supportive or were supportive of lowering the corporate tax tax mm-hmm. um, so e- even liberal economists so people that are you know that are interested in the little guy um, we're also in favor of this. Now that said, it's not not all economists are in favor of lowering the corporate tax. So it's not this is not one of those issues where everyone that knows about it says, "Oh, the answer is clear." Um, right. But it, but it may be more. I think it's certainly more complicated than than uh, just that the average uh, reader of newspapers would would appreciate. Right. Right. Okay, that makes sense. That no, I think you're right about that. Um, okay. So so I think the last area topic set of questions i'm gonna ask um it might just end up being one maybe two but um it's gonna be around you know the government's response to the coronavirus um economically at least um and i wanted to know you know so one thing we do cover in class is um not just taxes but uh subsidies right um get the, the giving out of money um and i feel like, I mean, can you maybe talk a little bit about what do you think the current but also long-term economic effect is of the current stimulus, right? Get, you know, what was the, the sort of the checks, but I think more along the lines of the increased unemployment um, insurance uh, or unemployment um, or welfare checks, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, so there were some very, by historical standards, very generous unemployment benefits which expired this summer. But it was it, the unemployment benefits were giving um, people, I think it was six hundred dollars a week. People that had lost right. because of COVID, six hundred dollars mm-hmm. a week, and this, this is that's a huge amount. Of, of unemployment insurance, okay, and that was very um, that was concerning to some people that you know people that thought it was too big said correctly in many cases. Look, a lot of people would be better off getting fired or losing their job and claiming unemployment than you know because six hundred dollars a week is so high. That said, a lot of economists, again, not not just liberal economists, but but conservative ones too, were were in favor of this stimulus, of a stimulus that high. And they acknowledged, look, there could be some effect that we don't love, but we need to act fast, we need to act big, and we need to act now. And something nice about this $600, it wasn't exactly no questions asked, but it didn't, it didn't take a, a tremendous amount of vetting, you know, because it's very costly for the government to go and research every single claim on for unemployment benefits. So a lot of economists thought we should act fast and act strong and act now. And, um, you know, acknowledging that was very expensive. Now that said, it's hard to keep that up for too long. And what you don't want with an unemployment tax is to, at least in, in normal times, you don't want to 
prevent people from working because they can make more money not working. So that has to be balanced. And that, that very, that, that, um, that generous unemployment benefit, generous by historical standards, has, has not been extended. It, you know, some people want it to be extended, but it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be extended anytime soon. So that's one kind of way that the government's been trying to help the economy. The government also has made a lot of um, funding available to companies. So a lot of companies are hurting, and it's hard for them to pay their expenses, to, pay their, to make their payroll. And it's harder for them, and it's hard for them to borrow money because a lot of banks that typically lend money are they're just hesitant to lend a lot of money to a company that now is much more likely of going bankrupt than it would have than it, than it was before COVID. So the government has made a lot of different kinds of funding available to different um, corporations. And again, this is not you know it, it, it's tempting to think, gosh, that's just helping out corporations. And to some extent that may be true, but, but the government's idea in doing this, at least, at least on the surface, I, I, I think, you know, I can't speak for the government, that's something we would never do at CBO, here I have a little <laughs> more flexibility, is that mm -hmm. it's in regular Americans' interests to keep these companies going, right? Because regular Americans work for these companies. So you want your employer to be able to borrow money. You want your employer to be able to pay payroll in particular. So, um, yeah, now it gets complicated. There's a lot of talk of why are they focusing on airlines and leaving schools to, you know, public schools sort of on their own. And that, um, yeah, I, 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 I suspect someone has some defense of that, but, that, but a lot of people think that is just a, a huge tragedy. And uh, um, yeah, so the government has, has been trying to do a lot, but I think a lot of people would say it hasn't done nearly enough, particularly in certain sectors. And I, and I, I might have a real bias with this because in my household, I have four school, or three school-aged children, um, and schools being in the state they're in is a huge impact on, on our family. Um, not, just, not just financially, although, although it is you know, financially now, I have to come up with childcare, paying for childcare that the school was effectively providing and you know not to mention the learning i mean there is online stuff but it's it's just not nearly as effective as being in school and um yeah so the, so a lot of people think the government could do a lot more and and there's a lot of debates about exactly what more the government should be doing so what what's going to happen in the long term it's hard to say right but I, but i think things are looking pretty um yeah, things are looking pretty bleak for a lot of, you know, we're just talking about America here, you know, CBO is, is the United States institution. So, so things are looking pretty bleak for a lot of Americans. Now, it's a little strange because a lot of higher earning Americans are relatively unaffected, at least as far as income goes by this. They still have their jobs. They still make their same salary. Um, that... For, yeah, I, I, how long will that last? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, even Georgetown employees who, who are, you know, for the most part on the, on the um, you know, they're, they're far from the poverty line, right? But Georgetown cut back retirement for, for this year, cut its retirement contribution, which is a significant share of your total compensation. You know, it's not 30%, but it's, but it's, it's you know, it's much, it's much higher than two or even 5%. So, um, so that's a real income hit that even workers at Georgetown, a lot of whom are still doing their jobs in one form or another, you know, teaching online. I know it's not nearly the same or as good as <laughs> teaching in person, but, um, 
but but it's especially the the people that are in service industries like um you know people that need people to walk into their shop that are hurt and it's i think it's bad and it's going to be bad for a while and then people economists are worried about a slow recovery even after even after things are a little safer out there right or whatever right 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 that makes sense yeah 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 okay yeah well that's really good to know for the future um maybe i was subtly asking you what i should do with my stocks um <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So that I mean, I think that is a is a mystery to to everyone. Why is isn't the, it like what's so going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just vindication of this idea that you should just buy and hold. Don't mm -hmm. tell. I mean, I have colleagues, people that understand the stock market perhaps a little better than the average American. Although the stock market, there's there are a lot of mysteries there. But mm -hmm. even even a lot of these economists, you know, knowing oh, don't just follow your feeling, don't just make these wild guesses mm -hmm. uh, yeah but a lot of a lot of my colleagues um not not i don't know about it in georgetown but but mm. from my previous work would be like gosh this just seems too high and they sold and what happened stock market went up another five percent so yeah so but right. I, that's a mystery i think even to the experts although some of these firms like i read goldman made a, a huge profit you know so goldman seems to have have something figured out uh, even in pandemic times. But yeah, that is a mystery. Right, with their trading, basically, yeah. right? So I heard basically their trading arm was the one that was just killing it. Right. Because, yeah. yeah, they had loan losses, of course. Uh, uh -huh. But, but you know, they're, they're, they're trading because just the market has been crazy. Um, so easy to make money. Yeah. So my advice on your stock, on your stock portfolio, Sunday, <laughs> is what it always is, which is don't try and guess the market. Just, just hold on to it. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I know. I'm. I'm not. If it if it backfires. Yeah. I'm. No. I. Trust me. I'm not good at stocks. So you know, no matter what, I'm. I'm. I'm not gonna blame you. I'm not. Oh, because I do. So what? Something that I do. Um, is like like I'll do like short term stuff. So I'll do like options and stuff. Yeah. Um, and like you know, I know I. Everyone tells me to buy and hold, and that's what. Yeah, that's what you should do. You should buy and hold but it's too fun because you can put in some money and then like with an option, you can, it can go up 50%, 70% and you could also just lose it entirely. Um, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, uh, I, I think that's sort of the joy of gambling. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It gives you an insight into how, into, into how people get hooked on gambling. It's super exciting and fun. Be very yes. careful, especially with options trading. Cause like, I mean, like you just said, you can lose a lot very quickly. But yes. I think a good rule, just, just don't put too much, don't put too much money in. And you know, you're, I mean, I don't know your personal situation, but you're probably not, you're, you, you know, you're probably not, or you're the entirety of your retirement savings now, it's probably not that substantial to where it'll be when you retire. So you probably can't right. hurt yourself too much, but. Right. But, uh, yeah, I know. I don't think me and my $150 account is really gonna. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, keep like it just impact my recover from and and have fun. You know. Yeah, it's just it's just a for now. It's just sort of a fun little thing. Um, I can just like do calls on stocks and see what happens. Although yeah. I'm always wrong because like you know I I always like to like bet money on Snapchat just for fun because it goes up so much. Yeah, yeah. But like I'm always wrong when I have the call. It doesn't go up. But like I don't have it now. Last night or two days ago, it went up like twenty percent in one day, and I was like, what? What? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is no. I I, I understand, and it's. I mean, if if you're always wrong, mm-hmm. then your winning apology is going to be to do the opposite of what you <laughs> you feel. But I think I'm always wrong. It's it's hard to do this, but this would be a great exercise for our class. Although mm-hmm. I found a website that that seemed to simulate this. Of course, I think mm-hmm. it wanted you to pay for it, but it was it would kind of allow you to go back in time. And, and implement different strategies. Strategy one, strategy two, strategy three. Uh, and, uh, oh. I think if you did that, you'd find that you were unlucky just as much as you were lucky. And yeah, uh, yeah. but it's worth doing. And it's, it's um, yeah. But if well, you're wrong, wrong, that would be valuable, right? The problem is you're probably not always wrong. You're only wrong. Sometimes. I don't know. It really seems like I'm always wrong. Oh, okay, okay. Well, well, in that case, you could, you know, we could really monetize you. You know. Yeah, you I know. Always do the opposite of what Sanjay says. I'll keep a blog, and I'll just say like, "This is what I'm doing this week," and then I want everyone to bet against me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but uh, but okay, you guys. All right, we got really off track there. But okay, okay. I think that is that's all I wanted to ask you. I think um, those are really interesting answers. I think that gives a lo- people a lot to think about. Um, you know. Okay, I mean, it's, it's very much my pleasure. I worry that I was sort of too much in my econ one teaching mode, so I'm sorry if I spoke too long. No luck. No, luckily it was luckily it was econ one teaching mode. You know, I think if okay. if we were out here to you know to, you know referencing advanced economics, I, I don't think that would have worked. Okay. Um, okay. Good. good. Yeah. I but hope uh, useful to your listeners. But yeah, totally my pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Really, I really appreciate it. I really thank you. Um, It was great. It was great having you on. Um, But, uh, but yeah. Um, Okay.